You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. How they do it. You know, they'll just start yelling in the middle of the restaurant, this is what this person wants. And so if you want your order to be quiet, like if you're on a low cholesterol diet, and you go to Waffle House, everybody in the place knows what you just ordered is not on your diet. Because they're going to yell it out. Well, I was reading this story of this guy, and essentially what he needed to do is he needed to take his wife to church early. She had to be there early. So as was normal, he would drop her off, and then he would go to Waffle House and, and hang out there for a little while, and then come back for church. And on one Sunday afternoon, she asked him whether he did his normal routine. Did he go to Waffle House? And she was like, yes. Or he was like, yes. And told her that. And she said, well, did you see this article? He was like, what article? So she read him the article. And the article basically said that this Waffle House that he frequented had a score from the health department of 67. He said, I didn't notice that. He said, but, but I did notice some other things. And so there's a, this is a picture that he took. And I know it's a little hard to see. Um, but what it says in that little yellow box on the right-hand side, I found my place at Waffle House. And it's a guy who, who worked his way up from doing just menial things at Waffle House up to, to management. He said, I found my place at Waffle House. And what, what this guy describes in that Waffle House is this culture that exists of everybody doing what they're supposed to do. And when, they, when everybody did what they're supposed to do, fun, things functioned well. Although it may seem chaotic and weird to everybody that walks in the door, it functionally worked. And he said that if I had to give them a rating on how they worked as a staff in that place, I would give them a hundred. The health department didn't see it quite like that. Well, the the rest of the story is that, that although he observed all those things and saw this poster on the way out, never saw the score, um, the follow-up for that Waffle House with, by the health department two weeks later, they, they got a hundred on their Score So it obviously got better. I don't know what was going on that day. But culture is, culture is a big deal. Um, the culture of, of anywhere is a big deal. And what Malachi in, in this prophecy, what he's sharing is really about culture. And the, the heart culture of the people that were living during that time. So we, we know as we read Scripture that there are times when a people develops a hard heart. I was listening to a preacher on the way here, and he was talking about the, the heart of Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's heart was hard. And then God kind of said, yeah, I recognize it is hard, and it's going to stay that way. And we've read that kind of thing in Malachi where it said that that God recognized the hard heart and even pronounced a, um, a judgment on them on the front end. Remember, it was that, go ahead, bless me, kind of thing. It was with arms crossed. And when we're dealing with a culture, we have to question us with the same question that we've been asking for several weeks in this study. What is the condition of my heart? Is my heart in such a place where it is hard, where it is calloused, or am I open to what God has for me? Am I open? Is, is my yes up front to God, regardless of what he asked me to do? Because if it is, whoa, wait a minute, let me see what you're going to ask first, and then I will decide whether I'm going to say yes or not, then we're kind of putting God in a, a strange position. And what I, what I want us to do is just take a few moments and um, just in quietness, kind of come to have that Jesus meeting, come to that place where we can say, God, you know the condition of my heart and I know the condition of my heart. 
And this morning, I want to come and just on the front end say yes, realizing that your grace is sufficient for anything you have in front of me. We can look back and see all the, all the places where we failed, where we've sinned, where we've disappointed God. But when we get to the place where we say, I recognize all of that, but I'm coming to the place now where I say, yes, God, whatever it is, I'm here, I'm yours. So would you close your eyes and bow your heads for a few moments? As the song plays, as Wayne leads this, it's not for us to sing. It's for you to listen and consider the words of the song that says, God, allow allow your grace to flow onto my life. And right now, I say yes. I surrender, recognizing where I am and who I am. Father, we come into this place thanking you for who you are. Father, that we can walk in here with burdens that are stacked really high. We can walk in here with sorrows that seem to be just just mud where our feet get stuck because the situations we're in are too hard for us to handle. God, we may have walked in here with anger and just this ill feeling toward whether it's a a friend or a, a family member, even church. We recognize that when we think about our life and what you've done for us, we realize that we can bring all those things to the foot of the cross and we can leave them in the hands of the one who is mightier than everything around us. And so God, as we come to this place, we just come as we are, recognizing you as almighty God, recognizing that you can bring healing where healing is needed and comfort and peace and and all those things that are just part of your character. And out of your love, you can speak to us and assure us that trusting you is the very best place to be and the very best thing to do. So, Father, as we read through this scripture this morning, as we look at some different principles, Father, guide us in that. Father, at the same time, help us to recognize the grace that is available through Jesus Christ and Him alone. So, God, we ask that you would work in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a reason I wanted to start like that. It's because when we decide that we're going to kneel at the altar before God first, it changes how we respond to things that are difficult in His Word. Because there are a lot of things in God's Word that are hard. They're they're difficult. When when God says a particular thing and and really kind of in, in some ways 
lays out the truth before us about who we are and where we're at in our spiritual life and in our relationship with him, sometimes it causes us to bristle in the back of our necks and go, I don't know that I can do that or if I want to do that. And we can become callous to it as we show up for church every week, pushing that back. Yet I want to encourage us to say yes on the front end, because when we look at this passage in Malachi, um, there are some deep things in, in this passage, even in such a short passage. You know, we've been looking at Malachi, and Malachi 1.1 was the oracle of the word of the Lord given by Malachi, the messenger. It was a burden that he was carrying that he was going to share with the nation Israel. And you know that the background or the setting for this is Nehemiah 10 through 13. It was the, the beginning part of chapter 10. And moving a little bit into that are these pledges, these commitments, these rededications of the people to God. And then as we get to chapter 13, we see that Nehemiah, after having been gone for a little while, comes back, realizes how far that they've moved, how hard their hearts have become toward God, and he's calling them back. He's saying, this is what I see, and this is what God says, and now how will you adjust? What will be your next step? In week one, we talked about the idea that God does not disappoint. God doesn't disappoint. His love does not disappoint. Where he said, I have loved you. They say, where have you loved us? And we go through all the pieces of them being a chosen people before God. He's loved them with an everlasting love. He's loved them with a love that can never be matched by any person. So that was week one. The second week, we looked at the, that there being joy as we give God ourselves. That as we turn over our life, there is a joy that is inexplicable, inexplicable. You cannot explain the joy that comes when you know Christ. Because that joy supersedes the circumstances we may go through. It, doesn't make the, it may not make the circumstances any easier. But knowing that we have a relationship with God means that we can move through it knowing that our ultimate place and our ultimate position is before God righteous before him because of the blood of Christ. So we can walk through trials in some semblance of joy because of who God is, not because of our situation. And so we, we learned that. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about this idea of giving ourselves to God. It says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we see that, for us in this place, our first step is to say, God, I come to the altar. The book of Malachi is about an altar. It's about the people's heart before God. And so this idea that Paul brings up when he writes to the Roman church, this idea of presenting ourselves, that would apply to us. Come to the altar, present our bodies as worship. Present ourselves, our heart, as worship to check the condition and to move forward. And so today, what we're going to talk about out of Malachi 2, 10 through 17, is this remedy for unfaithfulness. We're going to have to get into some things very quickly, and you're going to say, well, that's not a complete, a complete look at this. I understand that. We would be here till three o'clock if we looked at all the different pieces of this. So we're going to go through because there's principles that we can gain out of this. The first one would be that cultural relevance does not equal cultural, cultural subjection. The second thing we're going to look at is biblical liberty does not equal biblical license. And the third piece this morning will be evil's presence does not indicate God's absence. So those are the three pieces we're going to look at. So let's look at the first one. Cultural relevance does not equal cultural subjection. So if we go to Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 10, 
says this, Do we not all have one Father? Has not God created us? Why do we deal treacher why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so that as to profane the covenant of our fathers Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Let's just stop there. Because Malachi is bringing up something that we have to deal with. This idea of a double-edged sword with regards to culture. Do you you recognize that we live in in that kind of society? where there is a piece of our culture that says, church, we don't want you to have any influence. Really, we don't want you to act like a church. And at the same time, that culture holds the church desperately accountable for the things that are in Scripture. You ought to love like Jesus loved. But we really don't want you to act like Jesus acted. It's a double-edged sword. And so we have the choice whether we're going to adhere to Scripture or if we're going to venture away from Scripture. And culture is not going to be satisfied either way. So we as the people of God have to make a decision. We have to decide whether we're going to follow what the Bible says, what God says in His Word, or we're going to venture away from that and move a different direction. And if we decide that we're going to move a different direction, understand that we will no longer be the church that God designed the church to be. God designed us. He created us to follow this word. And in so doing, having that vibrant, alive relationship with him, that you cannot have apart from this. So when Malachi writes this, he's reminding the the Jewish culture of something that they should already know. In fact, it's ingrained into their culture, this, this idea of who God is. And when they stray away from who God is, they stray away from the design that God has. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 says this, Hear, O Israel. Now listen how closely this goes to the first phrases in Malachi 2.10. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Does that not sound like Matthew 22? It's the same thing. That's part of that love God Peace, when we say love God, love others, that love God, peace, that ought to be there. And Malachi 2.10 says, do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Malachi, what he's getting into right here, is saying, although you as a culture recognize this idea of having one God, you've decided that there's more, that one's not enough. We're going to add all these other pieces in. And essentially, when you do that, you end up being a different religion. You end up with a religion with many gods and not one God. Which puts us in a whole different realm if we do that. We have to recognize God as the one God. There's no one like the God of Israel. Paul addressed that in Acts chapter 17. So Paul stood Starting in verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Aragopolis and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. Could the Israelite people have been very religious in all aspects? Sure. Can we be religious in all aspects? Sure. Same, same thing. He says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. 
the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So if I asked you this morning, what other gods exist in life, in the culture in which we live, could you name some besides the God of Scripture? Sure you could. There's the, there's the God of job, isn't there? Where job takes the priority for everything that you do. There's the God of recreation. There's the God of school. There's the God of education. There's the God of power. There are all kinds of different gods out there. And yet none of them equal or satisfy like the God of Scripture. Like the one that we can know through Jesus. And Malachi, what he's saying here, he's saying, hey, look, there's one Father, there's one God that created us, but you have strayed. You've moved in another direction. It says, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. And we can put that in just regular terms and say, okay, they intermarried with people that didn't believe like them. And we could just say, oh, that's them. We would never do that. That's not us. But that's not the emphasis of Malachi here. This, this whole picture of marriage is, is not really about marriage. It's about allegiance. They have, they have moved to follow, from following God to looking at other things as viable candidates for, for having their attention. You see, God is a jealous God. There are several scriptures that talk about that, that God is a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, Zechariah 1, 14, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. This is what it says in the Exodus passage. For you shall, Exodus 34, 14 and 15, for you shall not worship any other God for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. We say, well, that's not right. Why would God be jealous? That doesn't sound like a very pure thing. It doesn't sound like something very holy. He's jealous. And we, we kind of say, that's a bad thing, don't we? But when we talk about the, the character of God being a jealous God, talks about his desire for us. That he doesn't want our attention to be pushed anywhere else besides him. It goes on to say in verse 15, Otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. Why does God use the imagery of marriage in this? Talking about man and the relationship to him as God? Because marriage portrays a relationship of intimacy. It's found in the concept of covenant. That unconditional vow to keep promise. What God is addressing here is allegiance. And intermarriage, although it was forgiven or for, forbidden, they understood it was forbidden. But when we talk about an allegiance to God, he's putting it in those terms so that they can understand it. Maybe this is the way to put it. Compromising relationship on earth represented a compromising relationship to God. That word profane in that passage means to injure or dissolve. Essentially, it means to wound. And Israel had marred the sacred dedication they were to have with a holy God. And Malachi was calling them out on it. They were putting relations with a foreign, with the daughters of a foreign God on equal turf of a relationship with Almighty God. The second thing in this passage is that biblical, biblical liberty does not equal biblical just or biblical license. Liberty does not equal license. 
We could look at this in a, in a lot of different ways. Verse 13 says, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar with, of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. That word cover means to cover. It's incredible, isn't it? But, but it's, it's like covering with a garment um, or, or concealing in some way. And, and it really has this, this idea of, the, the root for this word means to fill or blow up. How many of you have seen those sumo suits? You seen those? You, you put them on some people that don't know any better and um, you put them in there and they, and they, they just they, they run at each other and collide and, and bounce and all that kind of stuff. But you can't tell how big the person on the inside really is, can you? And what they were doing is they were filling up this suit on the outside and looking good, coming to the altar of God, when on the inside there was nothing there. And so when it says that they covered, that they covered the altar... Cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning. It was, it was a covering that had no substance. Because I'm going to come and cry and I'll feel better. And people around me will look at me and think I'm doing better. But when I go back, it's not going to be any different than it was before. And Malachi calls them out on it. Uh, the... The idea in this, if, if we were to go back and even look at another example of this, is what the, um, what the prophets of Baal did when that collision or that confrontation with Elijah took place. You remember what they did? They got together, they built an altar. There was this, this spiritual battle that was taking place on the top of this mountain. And Elijah said, you guys go first, go ahead. And they, they cried and wailed and cut themselves, did, that, did all those things, wanting God, to, wanting God to accept their offering. And what the picture here is, is that Malachi was saying, you're just like those guys. You're coming, you're crying, you're cutting, you're doing all those things. Yet God's not going to answer you. Because the God that you're worshiping is not the God of Scripture. You remember what happened following that? You mean Elijah did some trash talking kind of stuff with them? And then it was his turn. He said, water it down. And he prayed and, and the whole altar was consumed, including the water. It's because Elijah had his eyes on the right space and the right place and the right person. And Malachi is calling those people to turn their eyes back toward God. Come to the altar without the sumo suit and come to a real place with Jesus. God discerns the motivation of the heart. It says in verse 14, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion. And your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did, and what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. And let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. And then this phrase that we're familiar with. For I hate divorce, says the Lord. The God of Israel and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal, deal treacherously. God discloses the issue of, of allegiance with them. The picture here is the abandonment of a wife while seeking the replacement of something of, of that wife. And God gets at their heart motivation and their allegiance. And we, we see that practically even in our world. If we were to put it in terms of marriage, 
We could, we could see it in a couple different places. We could see it in people that have affairs or, or those that, that are wrapped up and consumed by pornography. They, they may have turned toward careers or something else. They've put something else in place of the wife of their youth. And it's not necessarily, and, I, and I'm not telling you that any of these things are good necessarily. But there are things that we even put in those places that we would consider good. You know, a guy is made to provide for his household. He kind of has that, that built-in desire. But when we make the career our God, because we have this idea that we have to provide, then we've, when we allow that to become a God instead of what God has provided to provide, then God gets replaced by something earthly. It's interesting in this passage where it talks about has filled, or him who covers his garment with wrong, that word wrong. You know what the, the Hebrew word for that is? It's Hamas. It's just like you would expect. It's, it's interesting when you look at that because in Arabic, the interpretation is zeal. Or, um, but in Hebrew, it is violence. And so when you look at that, we, the, the idea is that in divorcing, there is an acting wrong. It is a violence toward a wife. Divorce is a violent act. You say, man, it, it doesn't seem that way. It seemed okay. I wanted what I wanted and they wanted what they wanted. It's sin. Sin causes divorce. Why would God love something that is caused by sin? You would say, well, it was, it was supposed to happen like that. It's not God's design. Now, I want to be very clear here because some in the room have been through divorce. And I recognize that. And, and divorce may have happened, and you may say, I was on the, I was on the receiving end of abuse, therefore I ended up in a divorce situation. And I'm not going to ever tell you to stay in a place where you're being abused. So hear that. When we start talking about marriage and God's design, it is different than that. We look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 22 through 27. It talks about a wife submitting to her husband and a husband that is so committed to God that he is self-sacrificing for that wife. That's the picture. And that's actually the responsibility that goes with this. And what the Israelite people had done is they were really just trading what God had put in place, that covenant relationship, with something that was extra covenant or outside the covenant. And they were saying, it's good, we can, we can do this and it's all right. And God says, it's not. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And we, may, we may balk up against those kind of words, but understand God has a purpose because the marriage itself, and this is why He didn't want Israel to abandon the wife of their youth. He didn't want them to leave that because the marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And we would never expect God to divorce us, would we? We would expect God to put up with our failures and our shortcomings to the nth degree because He is committed in covenant toward us. There, there are other denominations that say, when you mess up, you lose your salvation. And we go back to a scripture that says that the Father has given us to Christ and what God has taken in His hand, that God will not let anything, let us be plucked out of His hand. We believe that we've been accepted or adopted into the family of God and will never get put out of the family of God. So God has no intention of divorcing us as the bride of Christ. 
He is committed in covenant to us. And what he wants is he wants that marriage to be that picture. Is it that picture all the time? Absolutely not. But is that the biblical design? It is. So what does trueness to the bride, trueness of Christ to his bride look like? We can go and look at the, the, the book of Hosea to get just a glimpse. Because in the prophecy of Hosea, Hosea writes and is instructed to marry someone that is, that is not faithful at all. This is what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. They love raisin cakes, love pleasure. Love something that just fills them. That's the picture of Christ who chases after us with an unending love because he loves us in covenant. And he doesn't want us to abandon him. And he's not going to abandon us. And so the last part of that, the last part of that section in verse 16 says, So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The idea behind that is we have in our space, because of what Jesus did, we have the the opportunity to turn back to God. We have the opportunity to come to an altar without all the other stuff that that could get around us and, and just kind of get before God, open and honest before Him, and allow God to bring healing to us. So here's the good news. And the, the way that this was put when I went to the convention this week, Daniel Ritchie said this, and, and we're, I'm going to repeat it in just a minute, but Daniel Ritchie said this. Now you have to understand who Daniel Ritchie is. Um, Daniel Ritchie is a guy with no arms. It was really interesting watching him because when he came to the pulpit to share, you know, I, I come up here and I kind of lay open my Bible and lay out this, but what do you do when you don't have any arms? He said, it's really interesting waking up in the morning, putting on a shirt and all the, all the sleeves flap all the time. He has no need for long sleeve shirts. And so what he did is he got up here, he, he had his stuff somewhere and he took his foot and I'm not even going to try it because it'll, it'll be bad. But he took his foot and he just, he grabbed his Bible and put it up on top of the pulpit. And then he, then he took his notes and then he's flipping pages with his toes. I'm like, that is super weird. And, and God has used him as a testimony of grace. And this is what he says. He said, God steps in to remedy the mess we made. And then he said, we are stewards of that grace. He had no intention of doing what he does. He now speaks and is a pastor. And, um, it's interesting the conversations that he gets into. He was in a McDonald's eating and he said, when you eat with me at a restaurant, Understand that there's a field of disturbance because he eats with his feet. Yeah. And there was a a mom and a son and and they were a little bit older and the son came over and while he was paying attention to his food, the son came over and sat down across from him. He says, and when Daniel looked up, he saw him and he said, and the the guy said, man, that's, that's pretty cool. Can you teach me to do that? And Daniel said, can you get your foot to your face? And he says, no. He said, go do yoga and come back in about a month. And, um, and then the mom came over and started talking. And in Daniel's mess, he was able to share who Jesus is. We are all in a mess. There's nobody in here that has it all together. Nobody. 
And so we may walk in here with masks and sumo suits and come to the altar, but, but we in some ways hide our real selves because we don't want anybody to think we're a mess when we walk in here. And yet we all are in that space. And so it's okay if we own that. Pete Scazzaro said this about the church. He says, we have to be intentional about taking the chaos of what people bring with them from their very different backgrounds, cultures, and families of origin and shaping it into a radically different culture that operates as the new family of Jesus. When we decide as a church that we're going to come together recognizing the messes that are in our lives and then recognizing the messes that are in other people's lives. And we start living out in a way that recognizes that Jesus is the answer to that. Then we get to be the church that God wants us to be because our focus becomes on him and not on the things around us. Third piece of this morning comes out of verse 17, evil's presence does not indicate God's absence. And if you look through Scripture, there's plenty of complaint. There's, there's lots in here. It says in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? We hear that all the time, don't we? Where is God? If God were good, he would do this. This is what it says in Psalm 111, verse 7. The works of his hands are true and justice. All his precepts are pure. So how do you put those things together? How do you put the idea of, we've got questions about you, God, and where are you just? We see lots of injustices, lots of things that are not right, and we'd love to call them out, but we want to know where you're at. Do you have our back when we step into those spots of calling out what is not right? And there are even times where as we step into those, we say, God, where are you? Because we're wanting to step out on faith. God is a God of justice. His timing may be just different than yours and different than mine. Proverbs 29, 26 says, Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. God is a God of justice. And so we don't need to judge what might seem as apathy on the part of God as we witness injustices. God is both alive and working. It just may look different. Psalm 94 is a really interesting psalm. It was part of what Deb and I looked at yesterday when we were doing our devotion in the morning. Psalm 94 was the scripture that went along with that devotion. And there is a peace in that. And it... There's a, there's a part in that that I just went, that is raw. Because what it says is, uh, the psalmist writes, he goes, you stupid people. What fools? And I'm like, okay, nice. I'm not supposed to use the word stupid, am I? And I'm not really supposed to call anybody a fool, but the, the psalmist seems to do that. And he's talking about all the injustices that are present that he's witnessing and at the same time recognizes that God will have the final say. So why is there evil in this world? It's because of sin. Sin is the great separator that keeps us from God, that messes with our allegiance, that... that causes our motivations to be skewed. Paul Tripp said this, sin creates constant instability and unpredictability around us because the world that we live in simply does not function the way the one who created it intended. Then he goes on to say, he says, you see, hope is not a situation, a location, a feeling, or a relationship. Hope is a person. And his name is Jesus. 
And I tried to figure out how I could say that in other words, and it was just a whole lot easier and more effective to quote Paul. Hope is Jesus. He is where the hope is. Evil and injustice do not have the last word. God has provided through His mercy and grace a sturdy hope. Peter calls it a living hope in chapter 1. That we have this living hope and we, we pro- proclaim that because of the resurrection that we see in Christ. And so how do we take action? We take action because by this. We recognize that brokenness is repairable through Jesus. We kind of live in this world of replacement. I don't know about you. I don't know when you replace things. There was a time in Deb and I's life where we, didn't, we, we hated car repair. Now, I, I know, Jerry, you sort of have to love car repair because you do that. I mean, it provides for you. But, but the, the majority of us don't love car repair. In fact, we, you know, it's not like, hey, man, I hope my car breaks down today because I just want to do some repair. You know, we, we, don't, we don't do that. And early in Deb and I's marriage, you know, if brakes went out, we just replaced the car. <laughs> it was easier to refinance a car than it was to spend the money on the brakes. So, you know, it was just a different, a little different mentality. I've, I've gotten older and wiser. And so now Deb's not allowed to trade it until she's pushing it down the road for a little while. And then, then we'll think about it. So, so we, but there's a, this replacement mentality that that we've kind of gotten used to as a society everything it's throwaway you know how hard it is to find a watch band in in this town i went to five places before i found a place that sold a watch band and i was like what and the expectation is if it's broke throw it away get another one because they'll sell you a new watch they just won't sell you a band to go on your old watch it's a replacement mentality and God is interested in us not replacing Him. He is jealous for us. And although we may be broken, God wants us to come back to Him because He recognizes that we are not throwaways. He doesn't toss us away just just to replace us with somebody else, but God is intimately and and desperately wanting us to have a relationship with him. And so he puts up with all the repair work that we need. Brokenness is repairable through Jesus. And this is how Peter put it. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold or from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, and spotless, the blood of Christ. God steps in to remedy the mess we made. Second way to take action is to understand that believers are ambassadors of hope. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21 talks about who we are in Christ, that we are a new creature. We've been made new. Old things, old things are passed away. All things have become new. And then in verse 20, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors of the grace that he gives. So we are stewards of God's grace. And so let's go back to the very beginning. What is the condition of your heart? What's the condition of your heart? And what's the next step? See, everybody in here has a step to take. None of us are immune to the need for repair and healing of the brokenness in our lives. And we need the grace of God for that to be accomplished. But we've got to be in a place where we're willing to take that one step. We said that on the front end that the yes comes first. And so what is the next step? For some in this room, the next step may be receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord. To be born again, to surrender your life to Him. 
that may be the first piece of this is to even establish a relationship with the God of heaven who desperately loves you. And so if you're in that spot this morning and you can't answer for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven, we want to settle that today. And so there are, there are folks in here that can talk to you about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. What it means to surrender your life. And so I would encourage you when we stand in just a moment that you just come to the front and say, I need to know about Christ. I've never accepted him, but I want to. I'm going to encourage you to come forward. There are others here who have received Christ, but not been baptized by immersion. We believe that baptism by immersion is an important step of obedience in following Christ because it signifies outwardly what has already taken place on the inside. And there are people in here that have been saved. They know they're saved. They know they're going to heaven, but they've never followed through in baptism. And we do it by immersion because immersion pictures that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's that dead to old self risen as a new self. And so we use that picture. And some may need to make it this time to profess their faith and follow through with baptism. And then there are others here that may have been duped into thinking that your satisfaction will come from something other than God. You'll chase after other things, but you won't chase God. The advice that we've given our daughter, who would love to get married, and that's not an advertisement. What we told her, chase God. Chase God. Eventually, you'll run into somebody else who's chasing God. And when you as a female meets up with that guy who's chasing God just as hard as you, it will, you will not have to change direction, but you will be joined chasing after him together. Chase God. And there are some in this room that have abandoned the chase after God to chasing other things. And you need to come without the sumo suit to the altar and cry tears because you've abandoned God. This is a place to come. And lastly, there may be some that need to identify with the believers here in this church who need to come to become part of this body, this local body of believers, so that we can be better together in accomplishing what God wants from this corner. And you just need to come and join. So as we, we're going to pray, and after we do that, we'll stand. And as God leads you, you come whether it's salvation, to commit to baptism, to be rededicated in your life to him, or to join our fellowship, you come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even these challenges out of the book of Malachi that causes us to check the condition of our hearts. And so, Father, as we go through this time of invitation, God, may your voice be the loudest voice in the room. God, may our ears be perked up to hear the voice of the shepherd. And then, Father, as we prayed at the very beginning, may our yes that we said early on translate to being yes now at this point. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. 